Well, as I was preparing for uh, this new sermon series and this series of messages that we're going to be on in March called Words to Live By, I went online and I wanted to do a little bit of research to find out uh, just how many words the average human being uses on a regular basis. Uh, and so I spent a considerable amount of time doing this. The problem was everybody kind of has their own spin on it. Did you know that? Some experts will say that the average person speaks about 7,000 words a day. I found myself in a, in a different area with a different researcher and uh, their bent was, well, when you add in text messaging and emailing and social media, it goes up to 15,000 words a day, sometimes even 20,000 words. I go on to another researcher and find out, well, no, really what you have to do is you have to separate the men and the women and the women use all sorts of words. You ever seen this yeah. studies oh, and I, down here? And then I found another person that actually refuted that and said, no, that's garbage. It's not true. It's really if you're an introvert, if you're an extrovert. So I was just so just confused all week long that I just said, man, what am I going to do for my intro to this message, right? As you look at your life, as you look at the words that you speak on a daily basis, the words that you type, the words that you post, I mean, how many words do you think that you probably interact with? I'll just let you come up with whatever number you want because you'll be right in line with all the other researchers. You're just guessing anyways, right? But we know we're constantly interacting with each other. There's, there's, there's words, and words, believe it or not, actually have a significant amount of power. There's scriptures that actually talk about that, that even the words that we say have the power of life, or they actually have the power of death. And so often when we get in arguments with people, when we have grudges toward people, when there's fights and there's quarrels among us, a lot of times it's because of words that are said, even more than actions that are done. Like there's a whole book in the Bible called James, and he spends a whole lot of time talking about words. He has huge sections about guarding our mouths and the way that we interact with others. And as Christian said, as we begin this new sermon series, as we've been in the, in the letter of Romans, this letter that a guy named Paul wrote to the church in Rome, uh, we got to, the, to these chapters, chapters 4 and 5, and what we found was there was a whole lot of big churchy words in there. And as we read it and we reread it and we reread it and we were circling these words, we said, man, we wonder, does our church, do the people that, that are at Shepherd's Gate, do they know these words? Do they know what they mean, what they represent? And not even just the definition of them. Do they know what we actually believe about these terms and what these words represent? See, because believe it or not, two individuals on this planet can look at the same word or the same passage of Scripture and come away with two completely different meanings. And so today, not only are we going to look at one of those words, the word called justification, we're going to look at what it is that we believe that God speaks to us in his word about that word in particular. And so one of the things that, that we do often here at Shepherd's Gate is we invite you to come along on this journey with us. In fact, we love it when you read the passages of Scripture that we're going to cover before you ever come in here. We feel it's the best way to prepare your heart. And so this reading plan is actually on the app. Every single one of our sermon series has been like this for the last couple of years, and so certainly this one as well. And so I want you to see just what we're going to be doing as we cover chapters 4 and 5 over the next five Sundays. But I also want you to look at these words... And this morning, I want you to ask yourself, do I know what these words mean? 
justification. What does that mean? Reconciliation. What is God's definition of that? Grace. We use that word a whole lot in churches, don't we? I mean, that's like our key word, right? Grace. When you talk about Christianity, you talk about a church, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Grace. I mean, there's even churches named grace. Oh, baptism. There's so many different opinions and thoughts and ideas out there about baptism. What is it that we would find out in Romans about this? And then finally, righteousness. And so we are just really excited about being able to dive into these things to really see what it is that God would speak to our hearts and our minds once again this month, the month of March, as we begin a whole new journey together. But I do want to start with this. I want to start with uh, 2 Timothy 3, which was also written by Paul. And uh, he said these words, that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And this means that even though you hear us say Paul a lot, because Paul's the one that wrote Romans, and he's the one that wrote a lot of the, a lot of the letters that are in the New Testament, is really God that inspired Paul. And even more than Paul speaking to us or speaking to the church at the time, he's really speaking on behalf of God, that God's the one that gave him the word. So more importantly, it's God that speaks to us through his word. And so all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And it's profitable for doctrine. Well, there's another church word. What's doctrine mean? It says for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Another big word. And if any of you that read Romans 4 before you came in here, you probably felt like this, right? Because there's just concept after concept after concept that was in there. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And we know that God has certainly put us on this earth and that our works are a result of understanding what it is that God has done for us. And we're going to see that played out today. And if you don't know what doctrine means, it means simply this. It's just teaching and instruction. Every church and every church body has doctrine. And doctrine, believe it or not, is actually very important. It's pivotal. It's to the core of what a church believes and what a church points to and what a church stands for. In fact, this is so important that Paul in other letters and other parts of Scripture actually warns against having false doctrine or moving away from this. In fact, I want you to see what he wrote in 1 Timothy. He said this, teach and urge these things, right? Teach the doctrines of the church. And if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with sound, look at this, words, or words are important, of our Lord Jesus Christ, the words that come from him, and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. You know, even as Paul was inspired to write these letters and to write these kind of explanations of doctrine, he, was at a, he lived in a time and a place when people were taking the words of Jesus, and they were, they were taking even concepts from the Old Testament, and they were twisting and they were distorting them, and they were coming up with things that weren't actually what God intended them to be. And guess what? We still deal with that to this day. Here's another way that he put it. He said this, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. See, the church has a responsibility to teach the word of God, sound teaching. But it says that people will have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. 
That people can actually be led astray by words. That they can be led astray by false doctrines. And will turn away from listening to the truth and they will wander off into myths. Wander off into myths. See, I would submit to you this morning that what we teach and what we believe and even what we confess, because yes, this is a confessional church, then it actually matters. And not only does it matter, it matters greatly. What you receive on Sunday mornings as you come in here, what you receive from, from whoever is up here preaching God's word is through a lens. It's through a foundation of doctrinal principles. In fact, this doctrine of justification is the foundation. It's the uh, cornerstone piece of everything else that we're going to talk about this month. But it's the cornerstone of how we do ministry here at Shepherd's Gate. Those of you that are in leadership positions in the church, maybe you teach in our kids program, or you mentor teenagers, or you work in our care program, you're an adult Bible study teacher. You're one of our small group leaders. Guess what? What you teach and what you believe and what you confess to those that God has entrusted to your care, it matters. And it matters greatly. In fact, I'll just give you one more this morning, okay? You with me? I'll give you one more because this is how important this is and this is how important it obviously was for God to tell Paul to write these things that we could even read them today He said this, he said, watch your life. Which I think followers of Jesus, this is something that we do, right? And we we can do sermon series on this, we can do practical sermon series, we can look at, you know, how to be a better husband, how to be a better father, how to be a better parent, and all the things that, that we do from time to time. But so often we don't get past that and look at watch your doctrine, and not just watch your doctrine. What are you supposed to do? You're supposed to watch it closely. And are we doing that? Are you doing that? Do you know what it is that God's Word says? Do you know what it is that He has for you? And as the Word of God is planted into your heart and into your life and you're able to understand the the truths of God's Word, guess what? Here's Here's the most beautiful part. There's freedom. There's actually freedom in it. It's not a law, it's not this bondage, it's not this place to try to control you or to put you into some kind of cage. There's actually freedom in knowing what it is that God actually speaks to us in his word. So again, as we go through these next couple of chapters, and God gives us these words, it's not just important that we know the definition of these words. And I would even add the biblical definition of these words, that we know why and how they can impact our lives. So you ready for this? You ready to go on this five-week series? You ready to dig in and to see what it is that God would speak to us? Because I want to let you know, we had a consultant here a little while ago, and he did an analysis of our area, and he told us that our area, he's like, wow, you're not going to believe this. You have really, really smart people in your area surrounding your church, so you can go deep with them. And I know you, because I've been with you so long, and I know you're really smart people, and I know we can go deep. And so I really hope that you're going to be on this journey with us the whole month of March, all right? So it's really important that you're in church every single week. Can I tell you something, Michiganders? Nothing happens in the month of March. Okay? It is like the, one of the most boring months of the year. It's the transition from what we just came out of, that January, February winter stuff, 
And we just pray, God, have mercy on us. Give us an early spring, which normally he doesn't. We're going to have snowstorms. The kids are going to have more days off of school. And then eventually we'll get to April and we'll get to Easter and all the fun stuff that comes with that. But for these next 31 days, man, I just believe that God has a word for you. And it's a word of encouragement to bring you closer to him than you've ever been before. And so today we're going to start as I said, with Romans chapter 4. And we'd love if you grab one of the chair Bibles that are in front of you. If you're in the front row, they're underneath the seat. If you uh, use a Bible app on your phone, you can go ahead and turn that on and click on that app and open that up. Uh, the chair Bible is on page 941. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, or maybe the Bible you have is difficult to understand, or maybe it's getting worn out, uh, we would just encourage you to take the one that you're holding now home with you today, we would just love to give you that as a gift on behalf of our church. We'll also have these scriptures on the screen uh, if you need to follow along in that way as well. But here it is, Romans chapter 4. Paul's writing to this church in Rome that he's never been to before. Paul's a follower of Jesus, and, and this is how he starts in verse 1. He says this, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh. Now look at what it says. For if Abraham was justified, there's our word, justified by works, he has something to boast about, comma, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? And he's going back and he's quoting Genesis, the first book of the Bible, and it says this, Abraham, that's why it's in quotes, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And so this is what he's doing. We just got done with the last couple of chapters looking at Paul, and what Paul was addressing was some of the disagreements in the church. And so there was kind of, there was two prevailing groups at the time. There was the Jews and the Gentiles, but yet they were all followers. There was Jews and there was Greeks. I mean, they were all followers of Jesus now, but they still had disagreements among them. Some of them still thought they were better than others because of their birthright. And so for the last few weeks, we've been looking as Paul has addressed issues like judging each other and being hypocritical of each other and the unfaithfulness that each of them had. And at the end, he tied it all in one big bowl and, bowl and just said, uh, you know, all of you have sinned. You've all fallen short of God's glory. You're all equal before him. And now he's launching into this new thing. He's launching into this new realm of wanting them to really understand their salvation why, is it, why it is that they're actually saved. And the first thing that he does is he points to the number one hero of the Jewish faith, which is now the Christian faith. Right? He points to this number one hero named Abraham. I want you to think about this. Abraham lived 2,000 years before Paul wrote this. And yet this is what happens sometimes over time, is that over time sometimes what we do as humans is we take human beings, people that lived, and all of a sudden we attribute them supernatural powers. And all of a sudden they become like greater than life. I don't know if you've ever had this happen with people that have died in the past, where all of a sudden they can do no wrong, and they live the perfect life, and they never did anything wrong, and that's exactly what they found themselves in. They had taken Abraham and they had made him kind of this idol, almost like this God. And they would quote this passage of scripture from Genesis over and over again. And they would say, look at what Abraham did with his life. Look how incredible of a follower of God he actually was. I mean, you could even use this to discipline others that were misbehaving, right? Why can't you just act like Abraham? 
Why can't you be more like Abraham? Why can't you get your life right together? Like, look at Abraham. He believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And you need to do the same thing. You need to try harder. Why do you keep screwing up? And why do you keep getting this wrong? And instead, what Paul does is he points to the guy that they're calling out, the guy that's their hero, and he says if he was justified by his works, he's got something to boast about. If he lived a perfect life, if he never did anything wrong, then all, by all means, he can boast about it. But maybe you should go back and read Genesis. Maybe you should actually read the life of Abraham. And if you haven't read the life of Abraham, we don't have time this morning, let me just tell you this. It's really screwed up. Okay? There's kids in here, so there's some things that Abraham did that I can't even talk about this morning. Plus, it's recorded and we're live streaming and all that other stuff. Go back. If you really want to read this, if Abraham was alive today, I guarantee you all of the daytime talk show hosts would be begging to have him on their show. Because there's some things that, that you read about his life and you go, wow, what in the world were you thinking? How could you have done that? I mean, from lying to, to just some of the acts that he did, I mean, it's mesmerizing. It's just like, you're, and sometimes you go, am I really reading the Bible? Oh, it is the Bible. Yes, no, is this really the right Bible? No, this is the Bible. This guy did a lot of really bad stuff. And yet God still had his hand on him. Yet God still worked in his heart and his life. It is God is the one that called him to faith. And here's a little practical, because this is what Paul does often. He gives us practical illustrations, right? He's a great preacher. This is what he says. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. So those of you that own your own businesses, those of you that are in upper management positions and you have employees under you, if your employees work, then you know you take and you turn around and you give them a paycheck, right? That's how, that's how the exchange works. They work, you pay them. They have to work first. Nobody ever pays somebody before they work. Right? Is there anybody that you own your own business and you do that? Okay, good. That's how it works. Now look at what he does next in the verse. He flips it and he says this. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him, believes in God, who justifies the ungodly, the person that realizes they have sin in their life, his faith is counted as righteousness. His faith is counted as righteousness. Again, business owners, managers, leaders. How many of you, you like to pay people who don't work? Any of you out there? The light is bright, so just raise it nice and high so that I can see it. Because somebody at 8.30 raised their hand, and I said, we're all coming and working for you. That's incredible. That's not how it works, right? You work, you get paid, but yet he's talking about our salvation as God calls us to faith. What God does in the human heart, the one that gets it, they can't bring anything to the table. You can't participate in this. You can't help God with this. You can't work toward this. The one who gets that, who believes in him and says, wow, look at what God has done for me. It's his faith that's counted as righteousness. And then he goes on and he adds another real solid Old Testament character, right? He, he, go, he goes for the next, you know, most popular guy at the time. He says, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteous, and then he ends it with what? Apart from works. And I don't know if you know any context of David. This is, a, this is another great opportunity for you to go back and to read the life of David. David did some crazy stuff. David found himself in some pretty 
steeped sin. I mean, awful stuff. Perpetual liar. The way that he treated people. Murder is included in that. I mean, it's, it's crazy when you read the life of David, and yet here he is, he's going to go and he's going to say, look at David, go back and read his life. And he quotes David, and this is a scripture from the Psalms, it says this, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Your sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Man, it's so liberating. Again, the freedom that that brings to your heart and and to your mind. And why is this so important for for Paul to tell them this right at the beginning here? Because he knew the battle and the struggle that they were going through. That legalism had seeped into the church. That people were trying to earn God's favor. They're trying to earn their salvation by their works. So now you, very intelligent people here this morning, as we've read eight verses of chapter 4, and you compare the difference between being justified by works or being justified by faith, what do you think God is speaking to us in these first eight verses? Which one? Which one? Which one do you want to sign up for, by the way? I mean, we don't really have the option because God's the one that dictates to us how we should live our lives according to the Word of God. But think about this. Justified by faith. But I can tell you this, so we're going to go a little bit deeper, is that not everyone believes the same thing about our justification. Church bodies, Christians, followers of Jesus have been split on this very topic. And I tried to summarize this as best I can using the most simplest terms for us this morning. And I realize that this is probably going to raise more questions. And that's a good thing. I hope that you email me. I hope that you call me. I hope that you ask questions. I hope in your small groups, in your Bible studies, that this causes discussion, that this causes us to wrestle with it. But you see, there's kind of four prevailing views when it comes to our justification and what it is that God does for us. And the first one is this. It's a cooperative grace. And so there's church bodies that believe, okay, and they teach this, and they hold firmly to this doctrine that God gives you a little bit of grace at a time. And as you begin to do good works, as you begin to do a to-do list, as you begin to walk in the things that, that they say that you should do, you've got to make sure you do this, this, and this, then you begin, to be, you, get, you begin to move toward God, and ultimately then, at some point, you'll be ultimately justified by God. But you've got to cooperate. You've got to be part of this. Another one is predetermined grace. And there's plenty of church bodies in our nation and around the world. And I'm telling you, they hold firmly to this. I have family members. They're on my wife's side of the family, but I have family members <laughs> that hold firmly to this. And this is what predetermined grace says. Is that before the creation of the world, God has already determined who's going to be a follower of Jesus, who's going to have saving faith, and who isn't. And even if you try to deny it, even if you try to reject God, it doesn't matter. If, you've, if you're picked, you're picked, you're going to heaven. And all the people that aren't picked, guess where they're going? And listen, I've dug into this. I've studied this. I've watched preachers because I wanted to really truly understand how they got to this point and why this is so important. And I've watched preachers preach this in their churches that have young families. One guy in particular that had several kids. 
And he said, every night I pray, God, I really hope that you chose all of my kids to be in eternity with you. But I realize I have no control over it. That you've already determined whether they're all going to go or maybe some of them are going to go or maybe none of them are going to go. Again, I'm telling you this because doctrine is so important. It it affects the lens by which you view the world. It affects the lens by which you live your Christian life and what it is that you pass on to your kids even. And see, even those two aren't the only ones. There's one called chosen grace. And this is a little different than predetermined grace because the chosen grace people were like, no, there's no way that God already determined all of that and there's, there's really nothing that you can do on this earth. They believe in this free will but, they, but the free will comes at a point when you and your own strength and reasoning have the ability to choose God. And so you come to a certain age and stage, a certain knowledge when you have experience, and you are able to say, you know, I see of all the facts, I've studied you know, all the different denominations, I've even studied all the religions of the world, and really this is where I'm at. And so I'm going to choose, I'm going to decide to follow Jesus. And the slippery slope, the kind of, you know, the, the, the difficulty with this is that all of a sudden, now again, it becomes a work. It involves my participation, it involves me in having to do something to grasp hold of what God has done for me. And yet this fourth option, this gift of grace, as we go to the scriptures, as we look at how they're presented over and over again and all throughout the Bible, that maybe, just maybe, God has already done everything for us and he's offered his grace as a gift and we're saved miraculously by what it is that he does. In fact, if you were here on Ash Wednesday, I quoted this scripture. I know many of you, you couldn't be here. Many of you, you joined us online. It was one of the largest online viewings we've ever had. So whenever the weather's bad, it's okay. Stay home and watch us online. It's cool that you could still be with us. But if we just rewind one chapter, we just go back to chapter 3. Now, I want you to, to be a student of this, right? I want you to look at this and see what it says. It says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Remember? We're all judgmental. We're all hypocritical. We're all unfaithful. We're all sinners. And then it says this, All are justified by his grace as a gift. Man. And where does this gift come from? Jesus Christ. He redeemed us. Redemption. He redeemed us. He redeemed that which was lost. If we're lost, we can't put ourselves back together. If we're the lost sheep, we can't make it back to the shepherd, right? God has to do it all for us. In fact, I'll give you a little preview in next week because in the next chapter it says that while we were still dead in our sins, Christ died for us. We gather and we worship and we celebrate something that took place, an historical event that took place 2,000 years ago. That, that God, in the form of Jesus, in, in, in full human, full divinity, allowed himself to be taken to a cross to stretch out his arms to die for you and for me. And take all of our sins upon himself that three days later we could, that he would rise from the dead and that you and I could be justified because of the faith that he gives us. Amen. Not because of anything we have done. 2,000 years ago, before any of us were even a thought, 
And any of our family members that are alive today's mind, right? All of this took place outside of us. So this morning, this is probably one of the most simple definitions of justification that I can give you, right? This is one of the best ways to memorize this word. It's this. As you look at justification, this is what it means. It's just as if I had never sinned. Justification, just as if I had never sinned. See, when we receive faith, we receive forgiveness. And God takes not just some of our sin, he takes all of our sin away. And the Bible says that he parts it from as far as the east is from the west, and he actually remembers it no more. We're not even sure how that happens because he's God, but somehow he's able to do that. And as he washes us clean, and some people will use white as snow or whatever, you know, whatever example that you want to do, you just know that all of the sin has been removed. At the same time, there's an exchange that takes place, and he gives us Christ's righteousness. And there's that word again. Well, what's righteousness mean? Righteousness is this, is that God did send Jesus to this earth, born of a virgin, to live a perfect life. He's the only one that's ever done this. He kept all the laws and the commandments. He never sinned. He was the spotless lamb that died on the cross. He was the ultimate sacrifice for you and me. So that righteousness that he has, that he did for us, this is crazy. Not only does God forgive you of your sins, he actually gives you Christ and his righteousness, and God becomes part of your life. God actually lives in your heart and gives you wisdom and guidance to face the day. That's how much you are loved by God. That's how much he has done for you. And I, I don't know any other way to explain it. And sometimes this, this is try, how I try to help people explain this. And I get it that it's graphic, but it it's kind of just boils it all down to this. I don't understand sometimes why people want to crawl up on the cross with Jesus. He doesn't need your help. He doesn't need us to help him do this. He's already done it for us. And so for you and I, as we wake up every single day and we open our eyes and he, and he gives us another day, we can realize, man, we have been justified by God. That God Almighty has given faith in our hearts and in our lives. And that he has never stopped working. He is always drawing us to himself. And we can rest in that. We don't have to wake up worried in the morning and say, oh man, what's the to-do list? And am I going to anger God? And am I going to lose my salvation today? And what is going to happen if I don't do it exactly the way that he wants me to? Guess what? You're not going to do it the way that he wants you to. Guess what? You've all sinned already today, just so you know. Some of you, you know it because you had car conversations and you had exchanges with your spouses or your friends or your kids or whatever the case may be. Some of you are like, I didn't sin today. You did, you just don't know what it is. <laughs> Sinners, saved by grace. Real quickly, because I know we're running out of time. just want you to know this. There's two kinds of justification, okay? Two kinds, because as we present this to the world, and, and as you see this, you say, man, why doesn't everybody follow Jesus? If that's what it is, why doesn't everybody do this? Because, you know, all the other religions of the world, do you know that you are actually supposed to do acts of service? You're supposed to do this to-do list. You're supposed to do these good works. And so all the other religions of the world have all of these things in place. 
In fact, most of them have it where even if you screw up here on earth and you go to whatever hell or eternal damnation that, that they have as part of their religion, you actually have a way to work yourself out of it to eventually end up back here on earth or back up into heaven. Double works. That's a lot of work. I'm kind of going with the grace route, right? I'm kind of signing up for what Jesus has done for me. And so this is kind of how this works. Objective justification is God's verdict of not guilty upon the world for the sake of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. What he did 2,000 years ago has covered the entire planet, all human beings that have ever lived and ever will live. It's all been paid for. That's incredible news. He doesn't have to die again, all right? He's done it, and that act completely sealed the deal for you and for me and everyone. But there's a subjective justification. And that, this is what it means, the benefits of God's verdict of being pronounced not guilty is still at work in the hearts and the minds of people in our world. And see, that's why he has us in the world. That's why we don't get saved and he just, and he just beams us up into heaven. He has us on this planet to interact with people that don't have this incredible news, that don't have this incredible hope. We go out into our community and we go around the world so that we can tell people just how loving and grace-filled he really is. Not to give them a book with a, with a bunch of things that they have to check off their list, but we get to show them the book that has all of the words that point to what it is that God has already done for them. That's the incredible news for you and for me. And I want to show you, because this is how it ends, so we get through all the four this morning, right? Look at your Bibles again, verses 20 to 25. And he just, this is like it. He, this is the final period on this whole thing. He said, no unbelief, he's talking about Abraham again, all of his unbelief all throughout his years ever made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith, as he gave glory to God. Man, God, I don't get this right and I don't completely understand it and I know that I fall down so many times, but man, I'm giving you praise, God, and I'm keeping my eyes fixed on you. And it says he's fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And that's because he made a promise to him long ago, just like he makes a promise to you and to me and those of you that have kids, right? You know this. Raise the child in the way they will go, in the end they will not depart from it. Hold on to those promises. And that is why his faith Going back to the verse he quoted at the beginning, his faith was counted to him as righteousness, not his faithfulness. It wasn't his faithfulness. He's a big screw-up. It was his faith. And then look at how it ends, because this is what it is for you and for me this morning. It was counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses, which is sins, and raised for what? Our justification. And this morning, we're going to take hold of that as we prepare our hearts to receive Holy Communion, which is another gift for you and for me. It's another reminder of what it is that God has done for us. And the words that we use for Holy Communion, you better believe they're important because we believe that God is actually present in and with the bread and the wine this morning for the forgiveness of your sins and for the strengthening of your faith. And so if you're new to Shepherd's Gate, maybe this is your first time here, you don't have to feel obligated to participate in this part of the service. You can just uh, hang back in your seat and follow along as the music team leads us in worship. Our guidelines are on the screen, and so if you are able to read the guidelines and you say that, 
that you're able to follow that, then certainly you're welcome to join us this morning. But as, as is our practice here, what we're going to do is we're going to bow our heads, we're going to close our eyes. We're going to take a time to have a personal confession before God. And this is when we just admit that we are sinners. That we don't get it right and that we are in need, once again, of God's grace and his mercy. And so, Heavenly Father, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, we come to you and we confess our sins to you in this moment and in this time. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have heard our confessions. And because of who Jesus Christ is and because of what he has done for us, you forgive us of all of our sins. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. See, it was on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this, remembering me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to the disciples and said, Take, drink, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. It's given and shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Do this as often as you drink of it, remembering me. And so we come now and we receive this incredible gift that our God gives us this morning.